0: Well, I invite you to turn with me to Hosea, uh, chapter 8, in your Bibles. And if you're still not used to finding it yet, if you flick through and you find Ezekiel, you're pretty close Ezekiel, Daniel, uh, Hosea. And if you've got a phone, you just look it up. <laughs> but let's. Uh, uh, we're going to read uh, the chapter and then into chapter 9, just to the verse 9. And. Um, well, before we read, once again, let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we desire that uh, you, we would hear your voice this evening and um, you would help our meditations and uh, all we, that we say and think would be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our God and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. So God says through Hosea, uh, set the trumpet to your lips, one like a vulture over the house of the Lord." is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, my God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good, the enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel, a craftsman made it, it is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing corn has no heads, it shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey, wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up. And the king and princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. Because Ephraim is, has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars to, for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws, were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings. They sacrifice me to eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity. And punish their sins, they shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied and fortified cities. So I will send fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. Rejoice not, O Israel. Exult not like the peoples. For you have played the whore. Forsaking your God, you have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vats shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like mourner's bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled." For their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival? And on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are going away from destruction. But Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. Prophets a fool; the man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God, yet a fouler snare is on his ways, and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves, as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity, he will punish their sins. So we're in Hosea, the uh, book of Hosea, and um, we're in a section of Hosea that runs from chapter 4 through to chapter 11, and it consists of a number of uh, messages uh, from God to uh, to the people of Israel, mo- mostly, and some to Judah in the south, the southern kingdom. And, uh, you know, it's warning them and giving uh, of the grievous issues that God is concerned about amongst the people. And you probably noticed by now, it's pretty unrelenting. <laughs> uh, we've had several chapters of, of this already. Uh, so let me, if you've lost track of where we started in this book, and, and maybe you've forgotten the really important, some really important factors, uh, let's, let's not forget that. Let's remember uh, how the book started. <clears throat> Which, uh, and... and and what God is doing is, is he starts off the book in the first three chapters of communicating um, about his... How, I use this advisably, but how God feels <laughs> about how the people of Israel are drifting away from him. And how is he going to do that? He's going to do it by uh, taking Hosea... And asking him to take a wife who, in the end, will prove unfaithful to him—a uh, a, a wife of whoredom, she's described as, uh, somebody with a, a propensity towards prostitution, it seems. And you know, Hosea has this uh, family life with Gomer; uh, he has three children, remember. And uh, but she is, she has this propensity to go after other lovers. And what a what a burdensome thing that is for, for Hosea. Um, that he loves his wife, but his wife is just fickle in her love for him. And goes off. And, uh, and in, in chapter 3, you know, Hosea has to go and, and literally buy her back with money. To pay money. To have uh, Gomer come back uh, into his household. And it's this experience that Hosea is given under the command of God, that gives him insight into how God sees the unfaithfulness of Israel. And this is about 700 BC, 740 to 700 BC. Hosea is uh, ministering. And Israel, the northern kingdom, has drifted away from God. And God is grieved by it. And there's, you know, there's... uh, uh, there's almost a kind of uh, pleading exasperation in the voice of God in this. If you look at back to chapter 6, verse 4, he says, what, what, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? So Ephraim is one of the tribes of the northern kingdom, and it usually represents the whole group of tribes. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I, I do with you, O Judah in the south? Because they've all got the same tendency. Uh, what am I going to do with you? And uh, their love, while his lo- his love for them is, is faithful and constant, their love for him is fickle and weak and deceitful. And you, you see this contrast between how God looks upon his people and then in return how the people look back on God. And when it comes down to it, what's the, what's the root cause of the people's fickleness and deceitfulness and feebleness? Well, it's, it's perhaps best expressed in chapter 4, verse 1, where he says, uh, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. And here's the key thing. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There's no knowledge of God in the land. And uh, it goes on to express that in chapter 4, verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. The root cause of all the troubles that are going to face is their lack of knowledge of God. And, and so it goes on. And the consequence of that is uh, in chapter 4, verse 14. And people without understanding, without knowledge... Shall come to ruin. And this is the message. You know, it's a kind of pleading message from God. This is from the heart of a God who loves his people. And he says, But you, know, you need to love me and, and know me. But, but without, and without that, you come to ruin. And this is the great, uh, one of the great messages of Hosea. And of course, when he's speaking about knowledge, you know, he's not speaking about um, Knowledge about God. And we've covered this already, and to a certain extent, we did this morning as well. Um, he's not talking about knowledge about God, and you know there are plenty of people who have a knowledge about God. You know, they, there are people who don't believe the gospel who can talk about Anselm's ontological argument. You know, <laughs> how God, uh, you know, there can be no greater God that can be conceived. There's no greater than that God. You know, the ontological arguments. That was a very bad explanation of it, but you don't need to worry about that. And uh, you know, they could, but people, there are people who can talk about God. They can talk in theological terms about God. They can even maybe rattle off Bible verses about God. And I've learned them from an early age. I mean, I've learned many verses when I was young as a Christian, as a student in Glasgow. Maybe you have as well. And uh, but I've I've learned also that just to, to, to know those verses by heart is not sufficient to know God. Um, you know take an example uh, king charles is going to be crowned later at the end of this week and you know many of probably all of us if we're in the uk not those of you who haven't lived in the uk but those of us who've been brought up in the united kingdom uh, king charles has been a fixture of our lives hasn't he he's been around he's been in the news and uh, out of the news and some good, some bad, and uh, people talk about him a lot. And the, so he's, he's regaling the news, there are TV documentaries, there are books to read about King Charles and uh, his life so far and so on. And uh, you can watch all that, you can read all the books, you can, uh, can do all that, and, but you can never really know him. In a way that you might get to know him if you had five minutes alone with him. You might discover something about King Charles in five minutes that you would never find out from any of the books or documentaries or news reports or whatever. Uh, and so, so what we're talking about here is not knowing about God, but knowing God, actually relating to God, uh, being close to God, and finding him drawn close to you. Um, uh, this is what we mean by uh, knowing God, not just knowing about him, Though that's useful, uh, but truly knowing Him and making that that pursuit of the knowledge of God actually a a goal of your life—I uh, mean, your whole life—make the pursuit of knowing God the goal of your life, and and the means that you're given for that, of course, is the Bible, and um, and that, that may sound like a, a contradiction. I want you to. You know, it's not enough to know the verses of the Bible, but I want you to read your Bible. Am I contradicting myself? Well, it's not enough just to read the Bible, is it? It's, it's the means of grace. It's the means by which God comes to us. So it's not just the Bible itself, but it's how God uses the Bible in our lives. And as we wrestle with the Bible, not just learn bits of it and have it resident in our, our memories, but as we wrestle with it and wrestle with its meaning. And try and fit all the bits of the jigsaw together. uh, We begin to have an appreciation of who God is. And as we begin to live our lives in the light of that that word. As we seek to apply the the commandments and the exhortations that you find in scripture. And to to believe the promises that God has given to us. As we live our lives prayerfully thinking uh, relating to God. As we do all the things that we have to do in life. Then we begin to know God truly. And our lives begin to get shaped by God's word, become more like, uh, like Christ. And um, so, you know, knowing God is more than just knowing the verses of the Bible, but you can't know God without knowing the contents of the Bible, right? So our lives are got to be marked by this kind of habit of, of study, of meditation on the word of God and wrestling with God about the things that we read. Uh, from all, all of the Bible, not just the nice bits and not just the the, the warmly devotional bits, but the difficult bits as well, uh, because of the things you miss if you're just taking a devotional approach to the Bible and just think about the nice things that warm your heart. Important that though that is. So as we as we press on with this book, uh, we're we're going to see more symptoms of and effects of lives that are not given over to God, and that. And I, I hope that will be helpful to us. And and this reading, the reading we've had in, from eight into chapter nine, uh, can be divided roughly into to three parts. So the first part is in verses one to six of chapter eight. And here I think the issue you might summarise it like this: creating idols in the name of God, creating idols in the name of God. Um, there is something quite troubling about the way the Israelites speak about the gods they do not know. Um, and it is that they, they say the opposite. Uh, you see there in verse 2. To me they cry, my God, we, Israel, know you. So they're declaring how much they know God. <laughs> and uh, and they're saying this to God. Oh God, we, we know you. And You may wonder why, how they're saying that. Are they saying that as individuals? You know, so they've learned these prayers as children and they're saying these prayers and they they express a a knowledge of God. Uh, Or maybe it's in the great assemblies, you know, they're gathered together for worship and they're being led from the front and uh, the priest at the front or the prophet at the front says, Oh Lord our God, we know you. And uh, does it on behalf of the people and all the people nod and privately and say yes we know you and yet in their heart of hearts they don't know God this is, this is the kind of picture and, and God knows exactly what's going on in the heart this is what he says in verse 3 Israel has spurned the good is, or Israel has rejected the good so in their, with their mouths they're saying this we know you but they're actually rejecting what is good for them. What does that mean? Uh, God, God sees what we're really after in life. He knows. He knows exactly what we're after in life. And he sees that, that what you really want is, may not be good for you. That what God wants you to have is not is not the thing you really want in your heart of hearts you're, you don 't really want those things. you may say you want them and and you say to God, "Yes, we know you, um, but God sees you see God sees into the heart and and that, you know God sees when people are free and easy with their professions of faith uh, and their commitment to God and the expressed commitment to god he he knows when you say that and you behave as though it, he doesn't matter. You express professions of love and devotion to God and he knows when it's not true and you spurn the good. And what's interesting is, you know, these are people who, who think that they're serving God. They, uh, but they're doing it in a way that God has already... Uh, forbidden. So, if you look at verse four, the second half of verse four is the thing about kings. There, um, which I'll skip over for a moment for uh, for now. But uh, it says, "With their silver and their gold, they made idols for their own destruction." Um, and then, and about that, God says, verse five, "I have spurned your calf, O Samaria." So, so Samaria it looks likely that they set up this great calf to. To be a replacement for worship in Jerusalem, because they, as the northern kingdom, they no, have, no longer have access to the temple, so they set up their own system of worship—a calf that they can go and worship. And and here's the thing: they think they're they think they're actually worshiping God by setting up this calf. Um, the Israelites are passing this off as valid worship for God, but God has rejected it. And how can this happen? Well, they're saying to themselves, well, We better set up something visual, something spectacular, something amazing that people are going to really respond to. And they're going to come and they're going to be so impressed with this kind of calf that is is laid out before them. And they're going to bow down and they're going to worship. And we're going to keep all the people together and unite them around this, this idol. Which really represents God, you know, and it does God glory. It brings glory to God. It might be a golden calf, it might be a beautiful calf, an ornate calf, and doing all that brings glory to God. Surely He's going to be pleased with that. And actually, God says, verse 6 it is not God. It is not God. And of course course God has to say that because what happens with this idol is that it actually in the end becomes their God. They only see God as this thing, this idol that they've established. And of course you'll remember that uh, Israel has already been taught this, uh, this lesson in Mount Sinai that, uh, you remember they set up the golden calf and Aaron just let the people do it and then he made excuses when Moses came back down. And we just, th- we threw the gold into the fire and out came this calf. Amazing. <laughs> and, and no representation of God can ever be good. And that, that was the point, you see. We need to rest on his words and how he speaks about himself and not try and make represent, visual representations of God. And it's evil because because idols only ever, they they, they do a couple of things. They, they limit, idols limit how you see God. And then there's, this has just come into my head so I can't remember where the reference is, but worshippers of idols become like their idols you become like what you worship so if you if you're if your idol is a stone dumb stupid thing you become a stupid thing <laughs> if you worship an idol it's true you become like what you worship so and so what God says then is, you know, it renders them incapable of innocence. So how long, here's this pleading voice again from God, how long will they be incapable of innocence? The call, of course, of the life of the people of God is to live innocently. In other words, to, be, uh, to live in the light of God and to, uh, to put, pursue knowledge of him, to worship him in a way that he requires, and to, to seek to, to live Without sin, sinning. To to. To be innocent. But these are people who have just given themselves wholesale to false worship, and all the associated sins with it that come with it. And so, in the end, it's going to come to nothing. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. Um, I, I can't think of anything more depressing um, than spending your life on something but in the end for it to come to nothing Can You, you know, what's your goal in life Well, to do this thing that just means nothing in the end and worse than that I can't think of a, a more depressing thing than giving your, giving your life to a form of worship and then finding at the end of days it was actually useless to you because you've never truly come to God for his grace and mercy so, it will come to nothing. That's what many people are doing. You know, I've known people who go to church regularly, and when I, when I ask them what they want, about uh, why they go to church. When I was a student in Scotland, and I, had a, I knew an elderly lady who, who used to go to the local church down the road, and uh, I said, why do you go to church? To her once, and she said... Well, it's an insurance policy. That's, it's kind of miserable, really. It's an insurance policy. I, I don't get excited about insurance, insurance policies. I don't know about you, but <laughs> maybe some people do. But it's almost like, yeah, you know, I've got to have it, but I, I really don't care about it. And, you know, it's such religion like that where you don't really care about it, but you do it just to, just to keep your hand in, as it were. Uh, that sort of religion comes to nothing in the end so so that's the first part Um, making uh, uh, creating idols in the name of God that can happen in a church here's the second thing Uh, because it goes on to to talk about the consequences more uh, more deeply and in verse seven, you see this uh, proverbial statement. You, you may recognise it: uh, "For they sow the wind, and they reap; they shall reap the whirlwind." And uh, uh, of course, you can't, you can't literally sow wind. <laughs> um, so it's, it's a proverbial statement, but it has this idea that, that evil multiplies. So if you if you sow a small thing, you know, a small seed, then you get you get a crop, and so if you if you sow a so wind, you get a whirlwind, so sow something that is sm- you know just slightly bad in your life, then it's, it's going to grow into something re- kind of really bad <laughs> in your life um, and you know th- that's the harvest of sowing lots of little bad things in your life. Um, and I think this kind of thing happens. You, you sow to the wind when, you, when people think that the pursuit of God doesn't matter too much. Um, so you say to yourself, yeah, sure, I'll go to church. Uh, I'll pick up my Bible every so often. Uh, but I'll not really give myself to it. I, I, I'll, do, I'll, I'll do the necessary. But I, I, I'll not really give myself to it. And in your heart of hearts, you don't think you really need to do this. You don't need to, to pursue God. You don't need to pursue him the way that... that that he leads us to in his word, in true worship and so on, uh, you're just not that interested in that. But I'll do, I'll do the necessary. And it's not that people are not driven by inner desires. People are constantly driven by inner desires. It's just that they don't coincide with pursuing God. And we're thinking a little bit about this this morning and you know, the command to, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, it's not that we don't love. It's just that we, we're not very good at... We're just very good at loving ourselves and not really loving God or anyone else. So we, we, are, we do love our... We do have those desires. And, you know, combine that unreformed, self-centered... Uh, I don't mean in the, te- the technical sense of unreformed, not, re- not reformed, but I mean, you're unshaped. Uh, combine that unshaped self-centered heart uh, with, uh, with worship and what you're doing is quietly sowing seeds that actually uh, bring a harvest of all the wrong kinds of things in your life. Uh, and don't provide a harvest of good things. So for example, you may, if you allow a slightly self-righteous attitude to develop in you when you're young, and develop a slightly, you know, us and them. We're, you know, we're better than them out there. This kind of attitude. And you go around with that. You know, we we're we're doing pretty well here, but those people out there are, are lost. And we're better than them. Then don't be surprised if later in life there's a bitterness and a hard edge that comes into your life. Uh, that other people find difficult to like. See what I mean? You just have a slightly kind of unrighteous attitude, uh, self-righteous attitude, which you never really deal with, and it just kind of grows and grows and grows and grows. And you become this hard-edged, awkward, difficult person when you're older and into your old age. But it's, it's actually worse than that. Because there's a a gradual absorption into the world. And, uh, you know, verse 8 is, uh, chapter 8, verse 8 is is interesting to that effect. Because Israel is swallowed up, it says. Already they're among the nations uh, as a useless vessel. Uh, It's easy for people like that just to become useless to God. Even though they go to worship. Even though they, they do, all the right, uh, do enough of the right things. They become useless to God. And, and your life actually outside of the church setting becomes indistinguishable uh, from the world. Um, you just become... Uh, this is what happened to Israel. They just became like the pagan nations all around them. With their forms of worship. And, the, and what follows from bad worship is bad, bad morality, bad politics... Injustice in society—all of those things, terrible things that happen. You know, if you're an alien from a a different planet and you got landed uh, in Samaria and you said, "Are they uh, more pleasing to God?" uh, You wouldn't be able to see any difference than the world or than the nations around. Can that happen to a church? Yeah, of course. You can I have a church, and people can go to the church, but they're not really any different outside of the church. And you know, the analogy is not very—it's not very flattering. Um, and so it goes on. It, it speaks of Israel like a wild donkey in verse nine. They've gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. So the people of God just become like this donkey that kind of floats around, just nibbling at anything it feels like, and just having no particular purpose in life. Um, you know, and donkeys might look for friends in strange places uh, to get some food and to be sustained and everything, but it will never turn to God. Um, And those people and people who are in that situation become uh, unable to see anything in God's word anymore. I wonder if you notice in verse 12. He says, Where, God says, were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. Have you ever met people who, who find the Bible a strange thing? They go to church maybe every week and they, but they find the Bible a strange thing. And you point out verses in the Bible and say, oh, I never saw that before. I don't know anything about that. And they have a morality that's shaped by the world and it's all its concerns. And they think they're being Christian. And they, they read God's word and they don't know anything about it. And they read the Gospels and they, they're just totally baffled by it. Why do you need that? You just need some, some kind of instructions for life. This is the kind of thing. So they become strangers to God, strangers to the word of God, and utterly lost in the wilderness. Um, so this is a disaster, isn't it? And, and so we come to the final section, which is uh, a warning from God. And in chapter 9, he says, he uh, gives this strange command. He says, Rejoice not, O Israel, exalt not like the peoples. So why give this exhortation? It's a strange exhortation, isn't it? Because Paul, in his letter to the the Philippians, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. (laughs) So he's telling Christians to rejoice. And here's God saying, don't rejoice. Don't exalt. Don't do these things. Why would he say that? Well, because they're trying to do it in their false worship. And in all their continuing sin and trying to have a good time doing it. Not really taking into account God at all, and there's, a, there's this kind of forced jollity in, in sinning together that happens, and God is saying, "No, stop, stop that. Take stock of your life in front of me. Have a look at your life." And this is what He, he says at the end of verse one: you, "You've loved, you have loved a prostitute's wages." You've played the whore forsaking your God. And see, see, what matters in things to do with God is not, is not what I think is great about what I do to him, towards Him, it's, it's what He thinks about my life. It doesn't matter what, whether I think something's great. What matters is whether He thinks it's great. That's the, that's the core of true worship. And there are times when it's right to stop the jolly, good time Charlie stuff even when it has a religious flavor and, and instead take, take a sober look at your life before God. That's what God invites them to do. And the warnings are clear that you know, if you continue in that, that kind of life, it produces nothing of value. It produces a, a drift into the world. And this uh, he may, when he talks about uh, verse three, uh, they shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, so, return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclude, uh, unclean food in Syria. There's a suggestion here that actually they're going to these, uh, you know, going to Assyria to the north, or going to Egypt to the south to join in their worship. You know, they're just sort of adopting their worship practices, and they just become like them. It's a drift into the world. And when that's true, increasingly, the things of God become tasteless things. So you see that in verse four, "They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, their sacrifices shall not please Him. It shall be like mourners' bread to them. Their bread shall be for their hunger only. There's no joy in this. It's for their hunger only. That's For hunger but not for pleasure. You may, you may have had this experience that you, you're sick you know, you, and you, you don't feel like eating anything. But you know you ought to eat something. Uh, because if you don't, you'll, you'll make it worse. So you know, your, your wife or your husband will say or your friend or whatever will say, look, you've got to eat something. And so you eat it reluctantly. And it does help, but you're not, you don't enjoy it. And I think that's kind of like what happens with God, with the things of God. If you're so used to going into the world and drifting into the world, the things of God become tasteless to you. And so you, you think to yourself things like, you know, I, I ought to read my Bible. I ought to read it. Or you say to yourself, you know, I, I ought to be at worship. Or maybe I ought like to go to the prayer meeting this time. And there's no joy in it, there's, there's just reluctance. But you feel it might be good for you somehow. There's no kind of, I want to do these things, I desire to do these things. And so it becomes a tasteless thing for you. And that's what I think being spiritually sick is like. And this is what happened to Israel spiritually sick. That's a challenge to us, I think. Uh, A warning to us as brothers and sisters. And friends, you may well ask yourself, what's the answer? Because the answer isn't immediately obvious in the passage that we've read. But I think it's not too different from what we thought of this morning. If you see the warnings and you say to yourself, I think that's talking about me. I think it's, you know, there is sin in my heart. You know, I do love to go and do my own thing. I do spurn the good. I may be coming to worship, but I'm, I'm spurning the good. Um, that you recognize you have those sins and inclinations, and you don't try and pretend it's not there. So there's a sense in which you embrace it. Not embra- embrace, I was thinking afterwards, I, I, said, I used the word embrace this morning, I thought that could be misunderstood. Let's all sin better. You know, that, that's not what I mean. I mean, you embrace it in that sense. I'm, what I mean is you need to accept that it's there and recognize it. That these are sinful tendencies in your own heart. And uh, don't try and uh, substitute, enforced jollity to try and cover it up. But rather just acknowledge the sins and tendencies of your own heart. But then secondly, to do that in a particular direction. uh, To acknowledge it and bring it to God. And actually... Use it as a platform from which to then go and pursue a knowledge of God and begin to seek Him out. Begin to seek to know Him and have Him change you. And to make Him the priority of your life. And to, you know, whatever else you achieve in life. And many of us have got ambitions. And maybe some of us have got very simple ambitions. Maybe some of us have got great ambitions in life. Whatever that is, whatever else you've got. Make this your top priority. That I will, by the end of my life, know God. I will pursue knowing God all my life. Now, how do you do that? How do you, how do you get to know God? Again, it's like the message we had this morning in this period of redemptive history. How do we come to God? We come to him through Jesus Christ. Come through him. And and Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So how do we know God? Through Jesus Christ. And that's what I'd urge you to do. Constantly have Jesus Christ in front of you. Uh, Seek him out. Get to know him. Make it a habit of your life to seek his face. Confess your sins. And see what God will do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And uh, it's challenging in many ways. Uh, to to listen to, to preach, to receive. But Lord, we pray uh, you would uh, burn it into our hearts and enable us to learn from you so that we have that uh, fire in our hearts to seek your face and to love you with all we have. In Jesus' name, amen.